Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, April 30th, 2021. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news and then presenting an interview with the animation supervisor on the new Pixar film, Luca. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film writer Chris Evangelista. Oh, hello. Hey, Chris. Uh, HT is going to join us a little bit later on for the interview, but it's just you and me for the news now. So let's dive into it. Let's talk a little bit about the HBO Max Green Lantern show, which has just gotten uh, some casting news and some new plot details. Yes. Yeah, so Finn Whitrock, who's uh, an actor who's on a lot of uh, Ryan Murphy shows, he was on American Crime Story and American Horror Story and Ratchet. Uh, he also had a, uh, a small part in The Last Black Man in San Francisco. He is going to play uh, Guy Gardner in the Green Lantern series. And Guy Gardner is one of the many Green Lanterns. And he's sort of like a, uh, I guess he's a jerk. He's like a, he's a hot-headed jerk. And uh, the series, <clears throat> quote, reinvents the classic DC property through a story spanning decades and galaxy. Galaxies beginning on Earth in 1941 with the very first Green Lantern, secretly gay FBI agent Alan Scott, and 1984 when cocky alpha male Guy Gardner and half alien Bree Jarda. I don't know who that is. That sounds like a Star Wars character. Yeah. <laughs> They'll be joined by a multitude of other lanterns from comic book favorites to never before seen heroes. Okay, so we got uh, we have a, a cocky male 1980s stereotype here, uh, played by Finn Whitrock. So I'm not super familiar with his work. You mentioned the the um, his appearances in the Ryan Murphy uh, span of of television. Have you seen him in a lot of those shows? Have you like dipped in and out? Are you familiar with his work? Uh, the only one I'm familiar with is um, American Crime Story, the the Versace uh, mm. season. And he was very good in that. He he played one of uh, Andrew Cunanan's, um, uh, I don't know if you know the story, but Andrew Cunanan's victims. Uh, and he had like an entire episode that was just like devoted to him. He played a, a character who was in the military, but he was gay and he was worried about being outed. Uh, actually, I think he was in the Navy, but um, that was the only thing I really ever saw him in. And of course, he was in Last Black Man in San Francisco. Uh, he was good in that, but he was great in the, the Versace 
season of American Crime Story. So based on what I've seen of his work, uh, he's, he's a good actor. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I, I missed that uh, American Crime Story season. So I'm basically like flying blind in the, the Finn Whitrock game. So um, yeah, I know, I know, you know, people who are big fans of the Green Lantern uh, mythos and franchise and comic book series and stuff, um, they probably have their own, uh, you know, history with the Guy Gardner character. And I'm, I'm just sort of like, you know, the, the 2011 movie um, that was such a, uh, a disappointment for Warner Brothers. I'm glad that they're taking what se- seems like the complete opposite approach here and just introducing a ton of different Green Lanterns. I feel like that'll give um, the fandom more of a chance to latch on to different versions of the character that they like and appreciate and whatever. And, and it just seems like it'll be a more interesting show than just focusing on one person and putting all, all the eggs in one basket, you know? Yeah. All right, so let's go to our next story, which involves uh, an interesting combination of people teaming up for a new movie. And we don't have to go too deep on this, but I just wanted to bring it to people's attention because I thought it was kind of cool. Kumail Nanjiani and Emily V. Gordon, who uh, got an Oscar nomination, I think, for writing uh, The Big Sick, the Oscar, or yeah, the uh, the romantic comedy movie that they wrote in 2017, are going to be writing a movie called The Doubtful Guest uh, that is going to be directed by Andy Muschietti, who directed the It movies recently. And he's going to be directing the upcoming Flash film as well. Um, The Doubtful Guest is based on a book uh, that came out in 1957 by Edward Gorey. And it is essentially about a... First of all, before I say anything, Chris, do you know this book? Did you like grow up reading this book by any chance? Oh yeah, I'm a huge Edward Gorey fan. And uh, I know this this book. I have uh, have pretty much everything Edward Gorey ever wrote. Wow. Okay. I'm I'm genuinely shocked here because I, I feel like I have never heard of this book and I don't even know if I've heard of this author. I feel like I'm I like... even went to the, uh, there's the Edward Gorey house, which is in New England. It's like a museum, but it was this house he used to live in. And I've even traveled there with my wife. That's how much I like Edward Gorey. Chris, is this a bit, are you messing with me? No, right no, now? I'm a hundred percent serious. <laughs> Edward, I'm, I'm actually surprised you haven't heard of Edward Gorey. He's, he's pretty, uh, somewhat, I mean, he's pretty famous. I mean, I... <laughs> I feel like a Philistine or something who like just, you know, completely uncultured. I have no idea. This is all new to me. But, I feel um, like if you saw Edward Gorey's art, you would know it. You just wouldn't probably realize, oh, that's Edward Gorey. Oh, maybe a wave of uh, childhood memories would hit yeah, me or something, something like something that. Like okay. That. Um, yeah, I'll have to, to do some uh, Google image searching later on. But um, The Doubtful Guest. So, uh, Chris, since you know this story way better than I am, you, tell me if this is correct. It sounds like from this, uh, this synopsis here that it's basically the story of a, a sort of a dickish penguin who shows up at a family's house and just starts messing stuff up and knocking things over. And the, the family is like too polite to ask it to leave and it stays for 17 years. Is that, is that the yes. gist of the story? That's pretty much it. Yeah. It's just this, <laughs> this penguin that just, he has like a scarf and he just refuses to leave and he just hangs out. Okay, so it's unclear if this is going to be a live action or animated movie or maybe like a, a hybrid, like something like Paddington, um, which I kind of feel like makes the most sense in a in a case like this. Um, I'm wondering though, Chris, since you're familiar with this, uh, this subject matter, what do you think is the best approach for turning this story into a movie? And then also, what do you think about Andy Muschietti as a director? He seems like a sort of an, an odd choice for this. You know, a few years ago, uh, it was announced that the Jim Henson workshop was working on a movie for this, and they were obviously going to use uh, puppets and stuff like that. And I would prefer that because uh, it's just cooler. And I, I just prefer that. Um, Edward Gorey's art is very specific and, you know, 
part of the charm is not just the story, but the, the art itself. And it would be really cool to capture that in puppetry form, but I doubt they're going to do that just because everything has to be CGI right now. Um, as for Andy Muschietti um, directing it, uh, it's fine, I guess. I, I mean, who wouldn't be like the first person I would think of to direct this, but I've, I've liked most of what I've seen from him. So I'm interested in seeing him tackling something like this, but uh, yeah, I, 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 Really, I don't think of these writers as the people I would associate with with uh, Edward Gorey. So this whole project seems very weird to me. But I'm curious to see how it, how it turns out. I wonder if there's, um, you know, because the idea of a, a so if they were to do this in live action, the idea of a penguin, uh, you know, crashing in and and sort of, um, I guess, like overstaying his welcome with the family. That kind of story seems like it would work um, with a human in that role. I wonder if the doubtful guest could just be if this could be like a loose adaptation where they, they change it and have, you know, a family member or something come in as somebody who is familiar and, and a fan of this work, would you be you know like up no, in no, arms no. about a change like that? Yeah. Or is that, it has, to, it has to be that it has to be the, the penguin and it has okay. to look like, cause it doesn't really look like a penguin. It just looks like a weird creature. So it has <laughs> to, it has to be some sort of abnormal, not human thing. It can't just be like, a guy it's just like uncle uncle buck i don't want that give me <laughs> right. give me a give me something weird okay uh all right well speaking of sort of weird news stories um george romero who passed away several years ago now has a new movie in the works what's going on here yes yeah, so george romero died in 2017 but before he died he was uh and apparently we didn't know this but this this just broke today but he was quietly quote unquote that's what the story says working on a script for something called Twilight of the Dead, which would be the concluding chapter in his uh, Night of the Living Dead series. And obviously he died before it got finished. But um, even now after his death, his, uh, his widow, Suzanne Romero, has been working with writers to get the script finished. And now they're going to start meeting with directors to make this into an actual movie. So... Uh, much like, much like the zombies in the the series, uh, the George Romero legacy lives on. <laughs> um, I, Chris, I've only seen Night of the Living Dead and then Zack Snyder's remake of Dawn of the Dead, and in terms of like these uh, Romero adjacent uh, zombie films, how many of these have you seen? Are are you like caught up on yeah, all of these? Okay, I've I've seen all of them. So, what do you think about the? Um, the quality of this franchise overall? Is it one of those things where there, there are some gems in there or is it all downhill after the first one or how does it go? Uh, the first three are great. Land of the Dead, which is the fourth one, is is pretty good. And then the final two films, which are Diary of the Dead and Survival of the Dead, are not very good. And uh, apparently everyone knows that because they're pretty much ignoring those two movies and sticking with this being sort of a direct sequel to uh, Land of the Dead. Oh, interesting. Okay. So wh- what do you think about this? Because it's it's a weird thing, right? Like Romero obviously is so closely tied to, you know, being one of, if not the biggest, you know, uh, zombie movie, like the person most associated with zombie movies in American culture anyway. So the fact that he's not here, but a story that he was working on is going to be finished years after his death. Or do you have like mixed feelings about this? Or are you just sort of like curious to see what it would be? Where, where do you fall on this? Yeah, I'm a, it's, it's a little bittersweet. It's, you know, I like the idea of using ideas he had to finish this 
this uh, series on on a on a high note. In theory, a high note. It could turn out to be a bad movie for all I know. But I, I like the idea of of that. At the same time, you know, it's not going to be him doing it, and you know, that's that's part of the magic. So to have him not around to finish it himself is is a little uh, unfortunate. So I'm 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 cautiously optimistic. Okay. All right. So let's get into our final news item of the day. And that involves uh, F9, the upcoming Fast and Furious sequel that is coming out uh, later this year. And um, I wrote an article earlier this morning that talks a little bit about the uh, how this movie is supposed to touch on the origins of the Dominic Toretto character, who's played by Ben Diesel. And it is actually going to um, basically re-envision uh, a scene that we saw in the very first Fast and Furious movie from 2001. And we're going to see that scene from a different angle. So you can read the details about that kind of stuff if you're a big Fast and Furious fan in the article, which, uh, you know, like all these and all the time, we just link these in the show notes so you can find it directly easily that way. But I want to talk about something that is potentially spoilery here. So I'm going to give people a few seconds. If you don't want to know anything about what might happen in F9, which has not been announced publicly, or what could happen in what seems very likely to happen in the uh, Fast 10 and potentially Fast 11, which I think is going to be the final movie in this uh, official uh, Fast saga is what they're calling it, then uh, pause this now or... Uh, uh, really just fast forward just a few minutes because um, you don't want to miss the interview that we have coming up. But okay, so spoiler alert is is in full force here. So uh, Chris, this was really interesting because uh, Vin Diesel did this big interview with Entertainment Weekly. Um, there, there's this thing called Fast Fridays where all of the Fast and Furious movies, uh, every Friday between now and the release, one of the movies is going to be playing in theaters nationwide. So today kicks off that whole... Uh, celebration if you if you want to call it that so the fast and the furious is in theaters right now um and entertainment weekly is doing this weekly series where they're interviewing a bunch of the people involved with making these movies so vin diesel kicked this series off and he uh, at the end of this interview uh they basically asked him if he had a time machine which actor either from this franchise or somebody he thought thinks would have been a good fit would he choose to plug into the first movie to help sort of build out the mythology of the fast franchise if he you know had the knowledge the foreknowledge that this franchise would be going on you know 20 years after it it continued and his quote was i guess if i were to think where we're going with the next chapter michael kane i might have found a way you're saying if I could have re- redesigned the mythology or added little elements of the mythology, I could have done something with Helen Mirren and Michael Caine's character and played something out. I could have introduced something for the future. So that to me sounds like it's not just him, you know, uh, blithely saying, oh yeah, Michael Caine, that would be a fun person that we could theoretically get in this franchise. That makes it seem to me like Michael Caine is definitely going to be in maybe, you know, have a cameo potentially in Fast 9 or uh, show up in, in Fast 10. And um, the the idea of him specifically mentioning Helen Mirren makes it seem like Michael Caine's character would be Helen Mirren's character's husband, which would make him Jason Statham's character's father in this franchise, which is kind of amazing because uh, Michael Caine starred in one of the most famous car-related movies ever, the original 1969 version of The Italian Job. And Jason Statham, of course, was in the remake of The Italian Job. So there's all this sort of like incestuous stuff going on here. Um, what do you think about this, Chris? I, I know you're not nearly as uh, as plugged into uh, the Fast Saga as I am. But what do you think about Michael Caine potentially showing up in uh, in maybe this movie or maybe upcoming films in this franchise? I mean, I'm certainly not against it. I'm always up for some Michael Caine. I hope he shows up. 
I, I feel like Michael Caine has become this actor who will literally just show up for one scene and that's all he needs to do. Like in Tenet where he shows up and he's like eating steak and then he's never seen again. <laughs> yeah. So I hope, you know, I feel like this could be fun, especially the idea of Michael Caine and Helen Mirren sharing the screen if, mm-hmm. if that happens. And uh, yeah, I, I have nothing against this. I'm more curious about what the the scene in the first movie is going to be is because that means it's going to involve uh, stolen DVD players, which is <laughs> which I feel like everyone forgets is the plot of the first movie. They're stealing yeah. DVD players, which seems so quaint compared to now where they're like, going to space yeah yeah um well okay i'll blow it i'll blow that surprise and just because you're curious i'll i'll um humor you here so uh, he talked in that interview interview about how it's the scene from the first movie where uh dominic toretto beats paul walker's brian character in their first race during the streets uh, or in the streets of la and uh right afterwards they get out of the car and there's like this big crowd of street racers and Brian is like smirking and he's like i almost had you and and everybody sort of goes crazy and and uh, Vin Diesel's character is like almost had me you never had me you never had your car like that that whole exchange that's the scene that he's talking about and he just said um we revisit that moment from a different perspective so I'm sort of wondering if uh John Cena's character who is who is Dominic Toretto's estranged and mysterious brother Jacob might be like lurking in the crowd during that moment or something With, like, I'm not a fake sure mustache he's like hanging out in the background <laughs> yeah exactly so uh <laughs> Man, I love this franchise so much. It's so dumb, but yeah, I, I you can cannot do anything wait. with it. It's, you know, you can just do whatever you want. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's go ahead and bring HT into the mix. She's going to join us to present uh, this interview. HT, welcome to the show. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Um, so we have an interview here. Tell us about it. So this is an interview with Luca Animation Supervisor Mike Venturini. I participated in the Luca uh, Early Press Day presentation, and um, I interviewed a couple of the uh, animators and the directors and producers for this uh, film, this Pixar film. And uh, this conversation I had with uh, Mike Venturini was really interesting. We talked about the influences that went into the distinct animation style for Luca, which is much more simplified and almost similar to 2D animation than the 3D photorealistic animation that Pixar is known for. And Venturini spoke about how they took cues from Studio Ghibli films, from um, Japanese woodblocks, from Ardman animation from Leica to create something that looks very distinct and unlike a lot of Pixar films. So how much footage of this movie have you actually seen at this point, HT? So I've only seen about 30 minutes of footage here and there, not like a full first 30 minutes of the film, but just Mm -hmm. kind of a bunch of sequences. Okay. So based on what you've seen, I I think I remember you talking about this before, you know, when you actually watch the footage um, on a, a water cooler episode or something, but, um, Speaking specifically to that point, the the visual style and how different it is from you know previous sort of uh, super realistic stuff from Pixar. I'm thinking of like that shot of the saxophone from Soul, for example, which is just mm-hmm. like jaw droppingly gorgeous and and so realistic that it looks like you know a screenshot from a live action movie. What was your um, your sense of this footage in terms of the look of it? Did it did it not have a Pixar feel? You know, because it looked so different. There is still the Pixar feel, but it does look 
very distinct. There's a – like, for example, the water. They went into a lot of detail about how they – took out the detail from the water because it's easy for the technology that they have to create photorealistic water, but they had to go out of the way to take out some of the ripples and the various pieces of detail to create this more storybook type of feeling. And that feeling, I think, uh, pervades the entire movie. I remember I I talked about how this film felt to me like a cross between a Studio Ghibli film like Kiki's Delivery Service meets the nostalgic sheen of Call Me By Your Name, like that Mm -hmm. sort of Italian riverside type of of story. And um, that is, I feel like the animation wasn't like so clearly stylistic that I noticed all of these things right away. But once I went to the presentation and I learned about all these things, it became immediately apparent that this is what created that feeling that I had from watching that footage. Awesome. And Luca is coming to Disney Plus on June 18th, 2021. I think it's going to be for free, right? There's some controversy about some of the the people who worked on this movie not being exactly thrilled about that. I think you wrote an article yes. about that. Yeah, it's streaming for free. Uh, no Disney Plus premiere fee, which is $29.99. They, uh, so unlike Ryan the Last Dragon or uh, Mulan, this is going to be going straight to streaming on Disney Plus. But yes, a lot of controversy over that because it's – feels like the Pixar animators have felt like they their work was deemed lesser than the Disney works because they don't have the extra fee for for Luca or for Soul. I will link to that article in the show notes of this episode. So if you want to read more about that, I would encourage you to do so. And uh, without any further ado, let's get to HD's interview with Luca Animation Supervisor Mike Venturini. Hi, my name is Huai Chen Bui. I'm from Slash Film. Nice to talk with you today, Mike. Yes, nice to meet you. So uh, in the presentation, you said that your team was greatly inspired by 2D animation. Can you speak specifically about which aspects of 2D or which 2D films helped inspire the animation of Luca? Yes, I would say um, the films that helped inspire us was, well, we we went outside of 2D as well. We looked into stop motion. Mm. Um, We looked at some of the Aardman stuff. We looked at... You know, I forget the studio that made My Life as a Zucchini, a European stop motion film, Leica's films. We, we watched all of that stuff for that kind of handcrafted feel of it. Ardman, we looked at for mouse shapes and how simple some of their dialogue is. We didn't want to be too complex in our dialogue because we wanted it to be, you know, more graphic. Um, but mostly we were looking at anything from the Miyazaki library, starting with his very first series he did, Future Boy Conan, which was, you know, um, a television show that Enrico grew up with that really imprinted on him. And so we watched episodes of that. Um, What we started to notice was certainly in anime in general and Miyazaki's work, it's very expressive in a different kind of way. Um, and one of the ways was, you know, that they do these really big eyes and mouth shapes and ah, like, and it's like an expression of the character's emotion or energy. It's not meant to be realistic in any way. And it's like but through the full body too. Yeah, yeah. And then they'll get really small and delicate and quiet. So we wanted that range in our characters. And we knew that um, because these kids were going to, we wanted these kids to be playful and, and seeing and doing things for the first time. We really wanted to feel that emotion and just be super expressive. So from a, a design aesthetic, those were some of the things that we pulled. Um, the other thing was that in Miyazaki's films, um, it's very efficient. 
his choices are uh they only animate complex when they need to for the story they don't do it if it's not important to the story they'll be uh they'll find really wonderfully drawn poses and spend a lot of time in the pose we noticed lots of scenes of characters just sitting there and it's just the wind in their hair and very little animation almost none in some situations and we wanted to try that we always at pixar we we try to make things feel organic and and there's a lot of movement and realism in it we wanted to try to pull that out because we felt like um in in the miyazaki library there's a lot of mood that you get from that and we wanted to kind of try some of that so those were some of the inspirations that we gleaned there's a word for that sort of space between actions in miyazaki films i can't remember what it is but it's um that that kind of letting the characters just sit and yes. things and like not having to fill the the screen with so much space and energy and and movement uh, which I think is a very a big rarity in a lot of modern Western animated films. So uh, that's really exciting that you're bringing that to Luca too. Yeah. Now that that really comes from Enrico's love for those films and how it's influenced him as a filmmaker. We use the word lyrical to describe his storytelling. It it's very rhythmic. It get, can get quiet at times. What we found actually in early screenings is that maybe we were doing that too much and it kind of slowed the energy down. So we had to be very selective. So you'll see moments in the film where they're just sitting under the stars, looking up at the sky, it's just quiet. It's a little bit quieter of a moment or when Luca first transforms and he's on the beach and he's just looking around, seeing the breeze and the grass and the trees, there's some really quiet moments. And then, um, but we had to be selective because, you know, uh, for the Pixar films, we do want to maintain a certain level of energy and certainly with the kids and the playfulness, we wanted to keep that, keep that up. So. So I'm glad you mentioned Aardman movies because when, during the presentation, I I remember thinking specifically that the the mouth movements, like the sculpting of the mouth looks so Aardman. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to ask about like how that was different in terms of like how you usually animate Pixar characters and just kind of making that more uh, like, 3D in the way that like feels yeah. stop motion. Yeah, so there's a couple details and I didn't want to get too it into the weeds in my presentation, but since you asked, <laughs> um, some of the things we were looking at uh, in, well, in 2D, they animate often every other frame. So it's not as full of detail. So the choices have to be a little bit more graphic because you're trying to describe more information with fewer frames. Our films are on ones. Um, and so what we tend to do with dialogue is use every single frame and we pride ourselves if you can kind of mouth read without the sound of the character, right? It's very realistic in that sense. On this film, we did not want that. So we wanted to animate our dialogue as if we were animating every other frame. Mm-hmm. So we watched 2D, we watched Ardman, we looked for how they did that. And Ardman's shapes are very simple, often using the same shape for multiple frames. So we thought, ooh, let's try to use the same shape for multiple frames, but figure out how to do that on ones. The other thing that they do that's fun, that's just graphic and descriptive is they're very liberal with when a character has a tongue, when they have teeth. Ardman stuff, the teeth just pop in and pop out. If he, if it's like a big smile to a ooh, the teeth disappear. So we did that too. 
usually in our films the teeth are solid in the head and you see them whenever the mouths open but here we develop controls to invis the teeth to get the little ooh shapes that have nothing in there and we developed um, ways to move the tongue around to get it to feel more like a drawing so yeah a lot of detail there so I wanted to talk to you about the effect, the multi-limb effect that you talked about in the presentation. Um, how did you guys come around to such an old 2D technique? It's barely used even in like current hand-drawn or 2D uh, projects. Uh, and uh, did, are there any other out-of-the-box techniques or 2D techniques that you ended up using in Luca as well, similar to the multi-limb thing? Multi-limb was probably the most uh, aggressive because it required the new technology of the transformation rig to be able to do it. And the reason that we really wanted to do it on this film goes all the way back to Future Boy Conan, one of Enrico's favorite television shows, and they did it a lot in that. And so he just always thought it'd be fun and add some zaniness to the physicality. So we, you know, we were gonna attempt it. And then when we realized that that new technology could help us do it, then we really leaned into it. So that was exciting. Other things that we've done, I'm going to say it's mostly in the face and that, you know, doing custom sculpts to hit mouth shapes. So we would look a lot at the storyboard drawings and see what the artists were drawing. Usually we would reinterpret that into something with a little more anatomy, but on this film, we just said, let's go for it and try it. So they do a lot of silly mouth shapes like the ooh shape or, um, you know, big mouth shapes when they're eating pasta and stuff like that, that required the articulation team to jump in and uh, do handcrafted sculpting. So it sounds to me like there's just a confluence of various uh, old traditional 2D, new traditional 2D, Western and Jap and like Eastern animation going on yeah. in this movie, which is something that I actually didn't really anticipate going into Luca. I didn't really think that the style was going to be such a, a major part of it. Uh, going into this, like, did you want to call attention to like all of this more stylization and all of its influences, or do you think it's just like better to sort of just kind of become part of that background? Yeah, we kind of just discovered it as we went along. We knew that Enrico wanted something unique. He, he wanted to create a new, a unique look to the film. And in the very beginning, it, it was as wide open as, I'd love to find a style of animation that fits the design sense that he was creating in the world that was more painterly and colorful. We did not know what that meant. So we just started we actually put a playlist together of a bunch of inspirational clips from all different kinds of animation from very, very, very simple, uh, very like cutout animation, stop motion, all of these things. And then we sat with Enrico and we watched it. We said, what are, what, what things in here excite you or what appeals to you? And then once we narrowed that playlist down, the animator started doing analysis on, ooh, how could we try something like this? in our film what what would we have to change about the way we build the characters and then we would try things and bring it back to him and he would go more less and we we sort of calibrated and then we started getting excited about some of the ideas we were coming up with and then it just i think ended up being a wonderful collage of all these influences also influenced by what we love at pixar which is why when you watch this film you're like, it's different than what a Pixar film does, but I can't put my finger on where else I've seen this. It feels comfortable and familiar, but I can't say I've 
seen exactly this somewhere else. Um, and this is just kind of a question that I was wondering during the presentation. Why doesn't Pixar animate inside profile? Like you said in the presentation that Pixar doesn't usually do side profiles, but why is that exactly? Um, in a realistic, a more realistic character, it kind of flattens out the depth of the world. Mm. Um, it's certainly more of an illustrative, you know, thing. So we usually try to keep depth in our world. We're always trying to find three quarters. There's certain angles where it just kind of a character can flatten out. Um, and, and in a more realistic world, you lose a little bit of life in those moments. So we, we never want a perfect straight on. We never want a perfect square um, profile. But this film, the profile seemed to work. All right, that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of these stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at SlashFilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you on Monday.